Hello and welcome to my Rita Showing with myself, Nadina Regan. This is the podcast based in Dublin, Ireland, where we talk to well-known people about their lives and about what has made them who they are today. It's been about a month since our last podcast with the Irish writer Emily Pine. And uh, thank you so much, by the way, for the feedback on that particular interview. It was a pleasure to do. And uh, yeah, really good comments from people and reviews on iTunes. Thank you. And uh, yeah, people commenting on Twitter as well, at Nadine O'Regan. So always good to feel like people are out there and they're listening. So thank you. This time out, I'm delighted to bring you an interview with another Irish person who has made a really significant contribution to Irish culture. Una Mullally describes herself on her Twitter feed as a writer and a doer, and that is very true. Recently named a European Young Leader, fancy, she is the author slash editor of two books. There is Repeal the Eighth, an anthology of stories, essays, poetry and art inspired by and emerging from the movement for reproductive rights in Ireland, which culminated in the successful referendum to repeal Ireland's constitutional ban on abortion in 2018. She's also the author of In the Name of Love, the Movement for Marriage Equality in Ireland. A writer with the Irish Times, she's a provocative thinker, a provocative tweeter. She's also a screenwriter, a poet, and as we know from the very titles of her books, an activist. She's also a podcaster with her co-presenter Andrea Horan on the very fine United Ireland podcast, which I would encourage you to listen to, but not till you finish this one. It's funded on Patreon, so you can go there if you'd like to fund it. And it is a 32-episode podcast which looks at culture and current affairs through the prism of talking about different counties. Una has a tendency to write more about her views on certain subjects than she ever does, particularly on her personal background. So in a way, that for me was a big part of wanting her to come in on my roots are showing because her past is fascinating. She's also dealt with very hard things. She was diagnosed with cancer some years back and dealt with that diagnosis even as she was continuing to appear on TV shows in support of her activism. She is also, by the way, only the second millennial to ever appear on this podcast. And I don't know if you've noticed, but that term, millennial, it just sounds nasty these days, doesn't it? It's like there's an automatic slur or a snicker attached to it. Like we're all going, oh, millennials. Like, I don't know about you, but more than once in the past few years, I've actually gone online and I've checked out exactly what faction I'm supposed to belong to in terms of this age demographic through which we all have this great separation, apparently. Um, if, you're, if you're not familiar with this, this is how we all separate into teams based on when we were born. So Generation Z are people born between 1995 and the present. Millennials or Generation Y, as they're also known, are people born between 1981 and 1996. Generation X are people born between 1965 and 1980. And baby boomers are people born between 1946 and 1964. Why do you need to know this? Well, apparently, because you're meant to be slinging mud at people online, uh, depending on uh, which faction you sympathise with. Actually, I was just mad. Actually, I was noticing the other day uh, in the States, 
Generation Z have come out against the baby boomer generation and now anyone who's older who puts up a tweet uh, expressing a view on an issue is liable to face a member of Generation Z giving this nasty little reply to them which just says, okay boomer. And this phrase, okay boomer, has become like a zeitgeist term. It's on t-shirts, it's a meme and it's really horrible actually. I mean it's kind of funny at the start because I was like, yeah, you know, like if we're going to give out about avocados we might as well go for it on that level too. But I mean, do you really want to pick battles with your gran? Because that's what people are doing. (laughs) It's ridiculous. Like, okay, boomer, let's try and leave it aside, will we? So before we go to Una Mulally, as always, just to mention, this is an independent podcast. So reviews are so appreciated. I don't have a Patreon account yet. Um, I say yet, like I'm going to set one up. I honestly don't know. But I really appreciate people listening. I really appreciate people talking about the podcast, about getting it out there through word of mouth. So if you are enjoying it and if somebody asks you if you have a podcast of choice that you'd like to listen to, please do consider mentioning this one. As ever, you can also listen back to previous episodes of the podcast. We have the likes of the beautiful, the brilliant, Graham Norton, John Ronson, Tracy Thorne, Pascal Dunhu, Emily Pine, as mentioned, Lenny Abramson and Donald Gleeson, all there on your Spotify, on your iTunes, on your Acast, wherever you get your podcasts, really. Go into Una. This podcast was recorded, very kindly of her, in the house that Una shares with her partner, Sarah Francis. And Sarah actually also pops in for a word later on in the podcast. And they talk a little bit about finding love. I kind of force them into it. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Remember, you can catch up with me on Twitter, on Instagram, at Nadina Regan, or on the Twitter feed that's dedicated to this show, at My Roots Are Show. Right, this is Una Mullally's My Roots Are Showing. You are very welcome to My Roots Are Showing. How are you? I'm fantastic. Good, good. Well, listen, it's a pleasure uh, to be here in your home in Dublin uh, for this podcast. We've met before, of course, and uh, often through your long career in journalism. But uh, we'll be talking today not just about journalism and activism, but also maybe finding out a little bit about where you're coming from uh, emotionally and literally. So maybe let's start with... um, a little bit of an account of, of you, actually, because I, I feel like all the time you're in the media talking about on behalf of others or interviewing others. But um, yeah, like where did it all start for you in terms of being interested in journalism? Were you the person in school reading articles, thinking this is what I want or was it something more gradual? I think probably the former. I have a definite memory of being in sixth class and um, my teacher asked me what I wanted to do and I said I wanted to be a journalist and it just came out of my mouth and then that was kind of set I guess when I was around 11 or 12 and then I began in music journalism 
uh, writing for zines and free sheets and stuff like that and that led to an internship in the Sunday Tribune and then okay hold up because yeah. that all just sounds really easy like <laughs> oh and then I just did this and I did that and like it's not that easy like I mean, did you battle self-consciousness I was really really into music when I was a teenager and actually as a child before then you know it was my main passion just like listening to music accumulating music I think I just wanted to make something of that it, I don't think it was a, like a particularly conscious thing I just knew that I thought a lot about bands and artists and I wanted to share those thoughts and that's as naive and you know honest as I can be on that and that I have always been self-motivated and just interested in loads of different things probably to a scatty amount and I guess a bit of a self-starter so the idea of drifting into different forms of stuff be that different forms of writing or you know producing events or um longer projects like books and things like that that's always just been the way I am you know I was at an Amanda Palmer show recently and she said that someone had said to her once you know if you can you must and I definitely think that a lot of people will identify with that when you think oh I could do that and then that thought just won't go away and you just end up doing it so yeah I think that you know writing about music is that foundation and then um I think I'm returning to that more so I think I'm drifting away from the more careerist um type of mentality I had around writing and I'm more interested now in just making things and being more creative and less tied to the job structure I suppose. Your dad uh, taught and uh, he taught a religion I believe uh, for about 40 years. What was his influence like on you? My dad is fluent in Irish and he was yes a religion teacher and also an English teacher. I went to an all-Irish secondary school and that's when I first started speaking Irish. He um, is retired now but was known as like an amazing English teacher um, a clutch own in Dublin and you know every time I meet people past pupils um, you know they always say your dad you know gave me love of poetry or your dad was the best teacher I ever had you know these are really common things that I hear all the time um, and he we share some personality traits I think he's quite um he goes against the grain a lot and uh, he's a creative person and he's kind of full of divilment as well. He was kind of famous for not teaching the syllabus, for example, um, and just teaching, you know, poets that he liked and um, <laughs> which is maybe a little bit reckless when you're dealing with kids who are doing their leaving cert or whatever, but it seems to have worked out well. Um, I do remember when I was studying for my leaving cert, um, which I did like a demon um I was really really obsessed uh when I was like 16 17 18 with you know doing really well in these exams I don't know why that got into my head but I remember doing quite poorly in my English mock exams and my dad at the time was also uh teaching in the institute of education so he's you know doing these English grinds and I asked him if he would give me a hand um, with my you know with the subject of English or with plays or whatever and he said no and <laughs> I was kind of like why you know you're on Leeson Street teaching all these people and you won't 
you know, give me grinds. And he was just like, you don't need it. You can do it yourself. And my parents have always been very like that in a way, you know, um, not in a punitive sense, but just in the idea that, you know, myself, my siblings were all independent people. Um, if we want to do well in something, well, then that's up to us. And I think that that instilled independence, you know, self-sufficiency, resilience, um, and determination, you know, to really make your own way, which they did as well as people. So, um, that's definitely something I've learned from my dad. What did your uh, school report say? It was generally always around, you know, talks too much, could apply myself harder, you know, was talented in different ways, but maybe a little bit of a loud mouth. I actually got thrown out of my English class in in sixth year, I think, for um, being, you know, a loud mouth and questioning the way the teacher was speaking or teaching. Um, so that wasn't good. So, yeah, I mean, I think I was I was very nerdy in secondary school. I was quite disruptive in primary school. I was um, a messer and, you know, definitely a few times my my mum would have had to come into school, you know, because I'd got into trouble and had to bring me home, stuff like that. So I kind of that got knocked out of me when I went to Clochy Scon, which was very strict academic school and I had no Irish so I basically just didn't say anything for the first month or so until I learned to speak it (laughs) It was just a weird Victorian uh, immersion process but I got through it then. In terms of the journalism career um, I read a business book recently which advised that the single most difficult type of person to manage is a journalist <laughs> and I, I wondered about that I thought about that and I was a bit like wait a minute like first I was slightly offended but then I thought well maybe that's part of the point maybe that's why a journalist is a journalist to be disruptive and character wise you know do you think your character suits journalism yes I think so I think that's an interesting point because part of journalism is to interrogate things not even from a critical point of view let's say if you're working in um you know arts journalism or something like that but you know to find holes in these things that we are told are just the way things are to question the status quo to you know look at the consequences of policies on real people and also to get into people's heads and um And then articulate that and inevitably because so many of our systems in societies around the world are not necessarily fair, I think you do end up with a distaste for authority um, or, you know, whatever the establishment is. So, yeah, I think inherently you're going to find people drawn to it who um, are not all okay with how things are done generally. Equally, then you get a lot of, you know, quite conservative journalists who are interested in access and interested in power and interested in those kind of things, which is not something I'm interested in. Well, to the former point in terms of interrogating institutions or sets of cliches, maybe that have been handed down from generation to generation, probably one of your uh, most significant early moves uh, was having 
you know, studied Bible studies for years, having had a father who taught religion, you took the very unusual decision to leave the Catholic Church when you were in your 20s. Why did you do that? I think actually it's probably out of respect for the church because um, I didn't believe in God anymore. I didn't believe in the church's teachings. I was very upset as, you know, most people were about all of the abuse scandals and I didn't want to be counted anymore amongst that flock. Um, so I, I, yeah, I defected. I went to the Archbishop's Palace in um, Drumcondra and... Tell me about the palace. It's just a big gaff, basically. <laughs> you didn't have to go and do that. You could, it was the time of count me out. You could just, you know, um, declare yourself defected. But I wanted the interaction and it was really interesting. I went in and there was a guy, I don't know, I guess he was a priest or some kind of clerical type person. And we had biscuits and tea and went through all of the reasons um, that I wanted to defect. And he very much, you know, was posing these counterpoints about why it would be so detrimental and um eventually you know I think we both came to the realization that it was happening and then I left and you know felt a bit more liberated and freer and you know happy in in my convictions um there's a reality though that you cannot be buried on sacred ground right there are certain consecrated ground um there are certain Restrictions. I mean, I'm not saying you're going to burst into flames if you enter a church, but things have changed. Yeah, and and I don't have an issue with those things. You know, I do, I have to say, even though it's, you know, maybe not a fair thing to say, I do um, take issue with people who are non-Catholics in so many different ways, yet still try and reap the benefits of perhaps a more social or ritualistic part of the church, like having Catholic weddings when they are not mass goers, um, baptizing their children when they don't want to have their kids in Catholic church, they want to get into schools. I absolutely understand how the system is stacked in education, making it so difficult for people to choose um, secular education. Completely understand that. But you have to make um, a point that's easy for me to say, I don't have kids. So I think I just wanted to lay down that marker you know I don't believe in these things I don't want to be a member of this church so I'm not going to be that made sense to me I think that that is a much more respectful thing to do than remain in a or you know a religious organization that you actually have no interest in and and aren't ideologically or spiritually aligned to at the same time though um having done that uh, there's a writer, the late writer John McGahern, I interviewed him when I was a very young journalist and I asked him about his attitude towards religion and the church. And he said that as he got older, um, it wasn't that he started to believe in God because he wasn't a believer in that sense, but he realized that he started to really want to believe and he had to allow for his intellect to tell him that that was not really a good position to occupy intellectually to believe in something just because he would prefer as he got older and more frail to believe in it I wonder about that in relation to something else that happened to you uh, back in 2015 I think I'm right in saying uh, when you were diagnosed with stage three bowel cancer um, a diagnosis that really 
sent a shock, I think, through the journalism community and, and further afield, um, not least because of just how young you were. You were, what, early 30s? Yeah, I was 32. It was a few days after my 32nd birthday. When something like that happens and when somebody is told, as you were told, that you have a, a very serious illness, it's going to maybe set you on a philosophical course that's unavoidable regardless of of your feelings or your convictions. So I wonder about how having been in your 20s and gone through something that was really unusual and quite exceptional and very specific to you, it really marked you out. And then in your 30s, your early 30s, to go through a life-changing diagnosis. These two things are, you know, it's, it's quite a heady mix, if you like, and not in a good way. So like, how did you feel? As you're talking there, I suppose it would have been easier psychologically if I had, you know, faith to lean on in that time, just from a comfort perspective. Um, Yeah, I definitely think that probably would have been easier. You know, I think, um, you know, my parents, for example, I see them get a lot out of their faith and their beliefs and certainly you know they seem to lean on lean on that you know in 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 difficult times and I understand that and that must be really nice um but I just don't have that so I think it would be quite disingenuous to decide when things are really difficult okay well I need a support system um you know spiritual support system now to lean into because this is really hard I I definitely think that there were probably moments during that period when I was really felt very alone even though I had you know an amazing supports around me like my girlfriend and my family and my friends but ultimately those things you know you really are alone in them nobody can really understand what you're going through other people with cancer or who've had cancer, I definitely have an affinity with because the practicalities of the treatment and the disease, you have common ground, but it is a very lonely um, period. And I don't think I've even, you know, in some ways, I don't think I've recovered emotionally from it. Um, it, It undermines everything that you think about your life trajectory. And you definitely look for reasons as to why it happened I know I did um but there are none you know um especially with my cancer because it was so bizarre you know this is a disease a particular type of cancer that the vast majority of people who get are over 70 um they couldn't find any environmental um reason as to why I got it and they still haven't found any genetic reason although I'm still going through um different genetic tests to try and figure that out so yeah you start to wonder about things like fate and predestination or karma but ultimately you kind of just have to get it through it yourself I mean it definitely changed me emotionally but I don't think it made me look for something that I feel isn't there Although I, you know, absolutely um, understand people who lean on, you know, 
religions or gods or things like that. I get, I get it. Um, but yeah, I probably did make, you know, I've never had cancer as a Catholic, so I don't, I don't know, but I would imagine that if I, um, had that kind of thinking, it probably would have been easier. So I understand, you know, what John McGarren saying was said as well. Um, and you often hear this kind of thing around, you know, as people get older, they get sick or they're dying, you know, they start praying, even though they haven't for most of their lives. And I understand that, but sometimes I feel like that kind of stuff is spoken about by religious people in kind of like a self-satisfied way. Like, oh, well, you need it now, don't you? And for me, it's like, if I wasn't going to have religion in my daily life, when everything is fine and dandy, I'm certainly not going to be so disingenuous to reach for it when things are very difficult. From um, a, a medical perspective, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, what happened to you in terms of the treatment and what you had to go through? Sure. So, um, let me think now. So I was diagnosed kind of out of the blue. I was having issues with my stomach and then I, so I had a colonoscopy and then they found the tumour and then kind of a week later, they were able to stage it at stage three. And then you basically kind of go into, you know, bajillions of scans and tests and biopsies and all that kind of stuff. So that was March 2015. And then I think I went in, excuse me for, oh no, I started chemo then um, at the end of March or start of April, maybe. Um no, it must have been in April because I had six weeks of chemotherapy and six weeks of radiation at the same time. So that was like daily radiation. And then I had constant chemo. I had like a pump attack, like that was attached to my body. Um, that was like an You did a TV show at one stage with that. Yeah, I did the Late Late. Um, the debate on marriage quality. <laughs> which was probably not the best idea I've ever had. Um, I was actually very sick that week as well. Um, I remember that. That was really hard. Um, and so then after that, I actually finished my chemo and radiation the day of the marriage quality vote, which was really weird. And then after that, then that was May. And then I think in July, I went in for my first surgery, which was kind of two surgeries and we're now three surgeries in one. So I had the tumour taken out and I had loads of other bits taken out. Um, and then I had a hysterectomy and my ovaries removed as well. And then I had an ileostomy, a temporary ileostomy um, fitted, which is where they take part of your bowel out and stitch it to the your stomach, basically. And then that's how you like go to the bathroom. Um, and that was reversed then the following November. Um, I've had friends who've had that, um, and I've seen the, just the, the, it's a very hard thing to go through, like emotionally, physically, um, one, a particular friend of mine, um, you know, didn't have the most successful operation with that. And it was three years before she got a reversal. And there's an excruciating discomfort that can come from that, particularly when you are in your thirties. Yeah, I I hated it so much. I have to say, I have a lot of, you know, empathy and sympathy for people who have permanent um, ileostomies or colostomies. Um, I I think I knew because I knew that it was only going to be temporary. 
I had resolved myself to just dealing with it, but it was really, really difficult. Like it's kind of, you know, it's humiliating, it's high maintenance, um, it's bizarre, it limits what you can do. Although, Jesus, I went to electric picnic that year. <laughs> Which was fair play to you. Insane. Um, and uh I remember just like, you know, probably after having like what I was able to consume alcohol wise at that point, which is probably like a pint and just like being in a port um, trying to empty my ileostomy bag, just thinking like, what am I doing in the dark? Going, Maybe this wasn't a good idea. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but I really applaud the fact that you did that. That was awesome. Mm, or stupid. I don't know. I think I was so... Um, throughout that whole period I was kind of delusional as well I was just trying to do all the things that I could still do um which was not practical and you know not smart but that's how I did it I mean obviously there were long periods where I couldn't do anything where I was in hospital or recovering from surgery and in a lot of pain and um yeah so I mean there were multiple very difficult parts of that you know period of my life which luckily you know, the, the most difficult part of it, the, or the most severe part of it, which is like having cancer grow inside you was kind of resolved, um, at the end of that year because my surgery and treatment were so successful, but then the aftermath continues, like the impact of the treatment, um, psychologically, physically, and, you know, I'm still dealing with it. And it's, it's, it's funny to me because, Obviously, when you you kind of I because I as you know don't write about myself and but I did during that that period, um, you know I wrote a piece about having cancer, and then in in April of twenty fifteen, and then I wrote a piece of like being di- you know cancer free quote unquote, and then that's you know that for me I was like that that chapter is closed. But of course, so everybody thinks oh, everything's fine and you were cured and la la la. And they're not necessarily seeing the impact that is lifelong. Now, I don't want people to <laughs> be constantly checking in with me or whatever. I have no problem with people not knowing those things, but it is, you know, a reality for people who've got who've gone through cancer. Like the impact of the treatment is so severe. In what way? Um. Well, I mean, the first way, major way, I suppose, was that because I had to have a hysterectomy and stuff because my uterus was so irradiated, then you're dealing with menopause for the rest of your life. And then the other issue, go on. Well, I just, if you don't mind me asking, like, had you, had you hoped to have kids at some point? Uh, no. So that was, um, you know, I was lucky in that respect. I hadn't planned to have children. And so I think if I had really wanted kids, it would have been much more difficult, obviously. But it doesn't change the fact that the act of going through the menopause is a really significant physical change in your body, which mm. affects everything from your digestion to many other aspects that that maybe people don't necessarily understand that well. Yeah, there's, it's really difficult and continues to be annoying and, um, hard. It was, it's less hard than it was at the time. Um, and then other things around like my, the operation that I had, which was a lower anterior resection, one of the aspects of the operation. So, um, I, got lower anterior resection syndrome 
which is kind of a new enough diagnosed um, syndrome around when, when it doesn't go as much to plan as it could. And basically what that means is that um, I have diff- a lot of difficulties e- with food, like eating different kinds of food or whatever. So that's ongoing, although it has got better. You have to train your gut relentlessly. Um, and then I fractured my back uh, twice in last year or the year before. I can't remember. Um, I think it was last year. Um, time has just warped for me over the last five years, um, because of radiation on my, on my pelvis. So I fractured my back twice. Um, and that was, you know, obviously painful and, uh, I have to be careful because combination of radiation and then menopause, you know, you're just wide open to osteoporosis and my bones haven't been coping as well as one would have hoped so um that's probably just going to be an issue more down the line than it is right now and so emotionally you know you've talked about some of the physical consequences of the cancer diagnosis but emotionally you must have just and continued to be to some extent been really through the mill um it's hard probably to see a through line or before and after maybe because as you said, you're still sort of living through it to some extent. But can you take me through, if there were stages, the stages of your emotions? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the obvious ones like shock, anger, resentment, all the things, you know, with grief, because you're grieving health. Um, I think the biggest thing it did for me emotionally was it took away my innocence. It took away my... I always would have been very like happy-go-lucky and never looking around a corner, you know, um, always just never having a plan, seat in my pants kind of person, um, you know, do something and see what happens, you know, very like to a chaotic, uh, <laughs> you know, point maybe, um, never really thought long-term and, it did, I feel like it took away that more innocent side of me. And I think that it, I feel like it kind of t- took away my youth as well. Um, because things just got very serious. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've obviously, you know, when you go through a trauma like that, it completely screws you up emotionally. But I think I've, dealt with it okay I mean, it's also there's also you know benefits as well I think it made me more empathic and um made me value things more I definitely feel really grateful you know all the time I was at the Sinead O'Connor's gig the other night and I'm going to tonight oh you're like she's just in flying form and she was singing black boys and mopeds and I was sitting on the balcony just like listening to her sing and like all I could think about was I'm just so grateful to hear this woman sing I'm so grateful I'm sitting here um listening to this and I have that experience a lot with art or if I'm in a club or looking at something amazing in a gallery I just feel really grateful that I'm around to take it in um obviously I wouldn't be thinking of that if I wasn't because I'd be dead (laughs) (laughs) I shouldn't be laughing at that either (laughs) Um, were there practical changes that you made in your career 
after the diagnosis and, and by practical I mean not necessarily to accommodate um, your treatments but just in a more in a, in a larger philosophical sense that you said right I have a newfound awareness of my time on this earth and as a consequence of that I might change up some of what I'm doing yeah maybe it, obviously it makes you more conscious of your mortality and one of the things that I remember thinking when I was diagnosed was you know weird shit is always happening to me dramatic things are always happening to me I'm a magnet for coincidences and weird timing and so you can't help but think that there is some pattern in the universe doing something moving in a certain way and I do remember having this really deep-seated fear of you know maybe the reason that I'm always packing so much into my life is because it was going to be short you know it was a very dark thought um and luckily I got through that so I think in terms of my work it made me if this is possible care less about what people think about me now I already don't give a shit so that was a bar and I just shed a lot of you know egotistical hang-ups and it made me more a greater resolve in calling things out more and in thinking for myself and you know not couching things as much I don't think I ever really did but you know sometimes you're you think oh well if I say this thing what will be the impact of it if I write this thing this person might be upset or la 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 you know I am always really conscious of being fair and like if you're writing opinion columns about let's say an individual politician or something I think a lot about the personal impact that that will have on that person because chances are they're going to read it so always being very fair and as empathic as possible with people but less concerned with the impact that it would have on me do you know what I mean so um that was definitely a shift and I think having the more we go through the more we experience as people the more it enriches our lives and that goes for good things and bad things and I think that you know going through something really difficult probably did improve my humanity which inevitably improves your writing I remember Maeve Higgins saying to me during the period of when I was sick like you know you're writing really well at the moment and of course in Maeve's typical like dark style being like you know I'm not saying it's a benefit or anything but you know <laughs> and I was like well you know you might be on something um so yeah I think anything enriches you know that can enrich our humanity and understanding of the self and ourselves in relation to the world in relation to mortality um, experiencing the health system in a particular way having to think deeply about things of course that's actually going to have um, an enriching process down the line so I think you know some you know I don't I don't think you can ever want to erase parts of your life that you went through I think that's a you know mugs game so I don't think I would change anything well, back in 2012, you appeared on TV3 at Celebrity Mastermind and your special subject oh. was Nirvana. <laughs> um, and I wonder, you know, post 2015, post everything that happened, you know, maybe in a few years time, if that same program existed again, you know, maybe your special subject would be very different now. I mean, did you move away from the music journalism and embrace via your column writing for the Irish Times and, and via other reporting 
a far more political aspect to yourself? Yes and no. Like I was already a columnist with the Times when I got sick and I continue to write about politics and social issues, whatever they are, which is just like life and the country we live in. But weirdly, I found myself gravitating back to music. And actually, in the last couple of years, I've written much more about music in my feature writing than other aspects. And I think that it goes back to what is important to me and actually art and people's creativity and people striving to make things is probably, you know, the most important thing. Um, one of the most important things in, in my life and what I'm interested in. Um, I totally hear you on that. And I, I've actually noticed that. Um, but do you wonder, I wonder sometimes if it's to do with the fact that, you know, some of the dragons, if you like, have been slain. Like, so you published two books. Um, one was In the Name of Love. And then the second was the Repeal the Eighth um, anthology of writing, which came out in 2018. And you know, both of those books were very important in different ways because they contributed enormously to the social argument or debate that was being had in Ireland through the teens, if you like. Uh, one to do with um, same-sex marriage uh, referendum and then the next to do with uh, the referendum or to repeal the eighth. So, you know, was it a case of the causes were there and your strong feelings and background and beliefs were also there that combined to make you more political through those times was it was it a case of I'm not saying come at the air but you know <laughs> but you know the, those causes were there you wanted to fight on behalf of those causes so was that part of it as well I don't know I don't think that was a decision but it's always a decision one of the things I think is a decision is the fact that you were a journalist deciding to knock on doors to ask people to vote in a particular way. And as a journalist myself, I really struggled with what to do in that regard because I had been brought up to believe that journalists did not do that, that they were not activists as well. And I think there's an ongoing question around that. And that's why I would pick you up on your idea or your feeling that it's a decision or that it's not a decision because... To me, it was an enormous decision to become an activist. I don't think you become an activist. I think that if there are things that you care about that relate to your identity or your society and things are happening around those things, you're going to be involved naturally. You know, I, and I don't think it wasn't a decision for me. The decision was made by you know the times the environment um the times that we were in I never sat down and thought you know will I do this will I not do this that was never it was I did I didn't have any decision to make I knew what I had to do and it was the same that everybody else knew what they had to do and irrespective of being a journalist I mean okay you know I I had a particular platform that I utilized to advocate for certain things. Um, and those were just the tools that were available to me. You know, loads of other people had different things in their life that they could utilize to 
assist in those causes, be that, you know, having a big car to give people lifts or, you know, being a doctor so they could speak from a certain perspective. Um, I don't think that I thought too deeply about it. I just did what everyone else was doing. I don't know. You don't believe me. (laughs) (laughs) It's not that I don't believe you. I suppose one of the things about that particular time that really struck me and bearing in mind that I was also writing for a newspaper but probably having a very different experience from the experience that you may have had for the Irish Times in writing on those topics um but I I did remember very clearly Roisin Ingalls experience you know Roisin having um had the bravery to come forward and describe and tell people that she had had an abortion and then put it on her Twitter feed and become very, very public about it at the risk of attracting, attracting anything. But then at a certain point, in my understanding, she was advised that that wouldn't be possible for her in her position as an Irish Times journalist to be so publicly, if you like, on one side, because we had that uh, situation where RTE had to have balance and they had to have pro and and anti. They had to they had to always have one person on the, uh, I suppose, pro-choice and one person who wasn't. So, you know, newspapers and the media generally did have an issue around that so it it seems that it's only fair to say that that was the case Mm. and that a decision did have to be made I mean I think you know that's a different decision you know the the decision that people such as Roisin Ingle and Tara Flynn and um other people who came out about their personal experience of abortion is a different decision you know you're 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 really taking a very serious step in exposing part of your very very private life I've never had an abortion um so I couldn't do that and didn't do that obviously um I'm sure if I had had an abortion I would have um written about it and spoken about it I think that you know in some ways if you're trying to change society you know you're you're a unit that is part of the collective and in many ways your life is not your own you know your life is part of the collective and you have to utilize every aspect of that to affect change for other people um if you have the privilege of being able to do that and you know that's how that's how I see that that panning out like in terms of the journalist versus activist versus you know objective versus biased for you know those kind of things like I have a lot of thoughts on that you know and and I and I was criticized um by other journalists for for my positions and blurring the lines let's say between you know advocating for change and you know just being a journalist but like I'm a person you know I'm a, I'm a woman I'm a human in this society and you know journalism is just a platform that I have in in my job um and I don't buy this you know idea that you know, journalists are like magically impartial. Like it's total bullshit. Everybody has opinions. Everybody has thoughts. Everybody has politics. Everybody has perspectives. Everybody has biases. And even if you, you know, deprogram yourself every morning with your cup of coffee to be captain objective, you are bringing those things to your job. You're bringing them into interviews. You're bringing them into your workplace. So I think it's disingenuous for 
journalists to say that they don't have those things, even in reporting, even in reporting, even in the driest form of factual reporting. You know, why are you choosing that story? Who are you asking the questions of? You know, or maybe if you didn't even think about it and it was assigned by an editor, why? Where did that editor grow up? You know, what are their, you know, so like all of the, I think it's much more honest actually for journalists to acknowledge their biases and, you know, have their opinions out there and say that that informs their work. You did say once, I think, to an interview with uh, Matt Cooper in 2016, that you weren't 100% a journalist, that you were probably 30% a journalist. Do you still stand by that idea? And what's the other 70% then? I don't remember saying that, but I'll take your word for it. Yeah, I mean, I guess that, like, of course, it's part of my my identity. But I guess I also, you know, I'm a screenwriter, a poet, former DJ. I don't know. I just do more like I a podcaster, United Ireland. Please listen. Yeah, I probably only spend like 30% of my life journalisming and the other percent is spent doing other things. So I, I, I don't, I used to identify heavily with, you know, journalism being so intrinsic to my identity. And we all do that, you know, when, when, when we're younger, as I've grown older, there's certain aspects of journalism and the media that I've kind of lost faith in. And what specifically? I think standards, you know, I think for me, it's always been about writing, you know, writing well, writing in an entertaining way, writing in a compelling fashion, hopefully articulating things that people maybe are thinking a little bit but don't know how to organize them in a series of sentences um and I like I wish that there were some parts of the print media that had better attention to that you know that it had a that held writing and the art of writing and style more highly you know the the dominance of controversialists or provocateurs or people just taking these like ubiquitous, boring, obvious opinions um, to mark themselves out uh, and, you know, make noise. I suppose it's like a type of anti-intellectualism as well. And that really irritates me because I think we should think deeply and smartly about things. And there are loads of things around talk radio and stuff like that, that just make me feel feel you know less and less and less invested in mainstream media and on that point if mainstream media cannot survive in its current form and what we're seeing is there are fewer sub-editors because they get cut because the papers aren't making the money that they once made and then once they get cut that layer is removed and then more mistakes are made which creates more potential for lawsuits or means that readers have less trust in the papers because they see more errors and then the papers sell fewer copies again so it becomes this race to the bottom and the same thing is happening in radio where it's not very much talked about but their numbers, their real numbers and not the puffed up JN Law numbers are fairly shocking in terms of advertising and listeners. Uh, Even though radio in Ireland is still a very dominant form of media, uh, it's unquestionably the case that the landscape has altered dramatically in the last 15 years. And what 
radio makers are doing to survive is often cutting costs wherever possible and changing the model entirely. We've seen it with Communicore, we're seeing it with RTE and the push to get that license fee increased. But in the middle of that, there is this other form coming out of left field, which is the podcast. You've already uh, been involved with the podcasting world with Don't Stop Repealing, which was very successful for you uh, around the time of the Repeal the Eighth movement um, and referendum. And now you have a new-ish podcast, uh, United Ireland, uh, with Andrea Horan. So maybe you can tell me a little bit about it. I've been listening, by the way, and very much enjoying. But like, what was the what was the objective? I think the objective comes from, yeah, the discontent with broadcast media in Ireland broadly, which I've been involved in in loads of different guises, you know, from making programming myself to being, you know, a talking head or a guest or something. And you kind of realize after a while the futility of um, being somebody on a TV show or in a radio studio, like having an opinion um, next to somebody else who was an opposite opinion or opposing opinion. Um, I just got, you know, just so sick of that. Um, I find it very remedial as a way to actually discuss issues. And myself and Andrea were talking a lot about after Don't Stop Repealing, which again was a very, you know, wore its opinions on its sleeve. You know, we were a pro-choice um, podcast advocating for activism throughout the campaign and informing people on it. So United Ireland was really about, okay, well, how do we take the things that we believe in, that media can be smarter, can be specialised, can be local, can be um, give local issues a global context and give space to discussion that is not about manufactured balance, polarised debates, people fighting in the studio, all that nonsense. And so we took those kind of values, I suppose, and created this structure where we take a county issue relevant to that county every week and then discuss it. And we have our opinions and we try and book smart people. We avoid as much as possible the voices of people may be familiar with from listening to Communicore stations or RTE. Um, and it's working, you know, people are responding to it really well and, and really engaged. So I think there are loads of solutions to making media better. I think a lot of the time, media organizations, legacy media organizations, mainstream media organizations, whatever you want to call them, carry a lot of um, the blame for, you know, decreasing, you know, engagement, audience, listeners, viewers, readers, because they haven't, they've kept up old models that actually were kind of uh, full of faults from the get-go. And media needs to respond to what people want. And when you look at you know, podcasting is a perfect example. You know, mainstream media leapt into brevity um, with regards to content, for want of a better word. You know, now that people are like just talking in statuses, we just have to have everything shorter and snappier and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that's totally not true. Like, you know, people pour over long reads and listen to really long podcasts and people want depth. They want smart stuff and that's what we're trying to do with United Ireland. Tell me about it from a practical perspective because having had the experience of coming out of radio myself and starting up a podcast I found the world of podcasting to be both challenging in certain respects because you start with no budget and also 
really um I suppose rewarding um in an emotional and intellectual sense because it allows you the bandwidth to pursue your interests talk to great people and maybe expand your own kind of personal horizons but practically podcasts you know I know they're cheap but they still cost yeah that's a lot of work and we myself and Andrea split the work um we record uh, mostly on Tuesdays. We have a producer and who also edits the show and that's a massive help. And we record in his studio, that's Andrew Mangan. And um, we divvy up the work. Sometimes we're doing things last minute. Sometimes we've planned ahead. Um, and yeah, it, it's, you know, we're not making any money from it yet. It's um, audience funded on Patreon. And that's kind of, paying at the moment for a producer and a couple of other people who help out um but I feel like you know we have a very clear mission in terms of what we want to do which is around enriching discourse in media that might sound really lofty because you know we talk about really random things sometimes but we just believe in that and we know that if we keep doing what we're doing that the audience will continue to grow um what's been really interesting to me is like if I'm out and about if I'm you know in a bar or something like that you know quite often people might you know over the years kind of come up to me and say oh I like that article or reference something in marriage quality or repeal or something like that and that's fine and what I found recently is that people are kind of saying talking to me about the podcast so that shows that it's kind of penetrating in a way that maybe we didn't anticipate people seem really engaged with it and I don't really listen to that much Irish radio if I'm being honest um I don't I haven't had a tv for years I don't watch any current affairs programming um which is you know considering you appear in it it could be awkward I've kind of stopped um that to be honest like I don't really do um much radio or tv anymore um I just don't really see the point I've done you know I've done so much of it over the years like I've done the prime times and the late lights and all of that kind of stuff and I don't really know if it's if it was worth that much to me or, or the audience and, and when you say it wasn't worth that much though like what do you mean because presumably your presence has really helped shape discourse and their audience is not to be sniffed at yeah, I think it, it is relevant in a campaigning context. Um, you know, if you're going on to debate something around, you know, let's say marriage quality where I did a lot of media. Um, yeah, you know, there was a clear defined goal there. And so then you're utilizing an audience to reach them. Um, I didn't really do that much media and repeal because I, I didn't feel comfortable as somebody who hasn't had an abortion being out there talking about it. I think it was better left to people who had personal experiences. So I deliberately didn't really do uh, that much even though I was asked quite a bit um I don't know it's also fake I've been the person in the tv studio or the radio studio making these snappy points and like having good clapbacks to like when somebody said something and I say well actually but like it's such theater you know I, I don't really see I prefer to kind of reach people in a more authentic way than than these kind of staged seven minute debates well it's certainly become more caricatured of late I think we lose va we lose faith in people you know I mean I um 
I'm not sure how you feel about Pascal Donoghue, but I had Pascal Donoghue, the Minister of Finance, on this podcast recently. And I've noticed he's doing a lot of podcasts, I think, because he understands as a podcast fan that this is a way to reach people uh, that may be more meaningful uh, for people than for him to appear on some of those shows. Mm. Yeah, and he is a massive podcast fan. Um and maybe that's the form that he prefers. And yeah, he's also a really smart guy and very astute. So I think your your analysis of that is, is probably correct. You know, it's a longer, broader, wider, more intimate setting. Like, what would you prefer if you were Pascal to be like shouted at for four minutes by Ivan Yates or have a lovely conversation with you? I know which one I'd choose, Nadine. <laughs> I'm not sure how he felt about it, but we'll see, we'll see. Um, I haven't met him since. Um, But uh, to change topic completely, and if it's not too personal a subject, uh, can you tell me a little bit about what it felt like to fall in love with your partner? (laughs) (laughs) Very, very drastic left turn here. But, you know, Sarah is someone who has stood by you through thick and thin and... Again, coming back to how you often tell us through your columns how to feel about something, but we don't always get the context for you. I'm interested to hear a little bit about your experience. I have no idea how to answer that. My face has gone all red. Um, Sarah's actually padding around in the background there. Sarah, will you come here and answer this question for me? Nadine's asking about our relationship. I mean, what perfect timing. Did you just come through the door? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know it. Well, go ahead. I want to hear it. I don't know. Um, Nadine was asking about like any Falling in love. Falling in love. Well, go on. Tell me that. <laughs> I How think... could I possibly answer that? I Who think... <laughs> First of all, she's so supportive. <laughs> no, I think that um, we. she's like the smartest person I know and the wisest person I know and an extraordinarily talented writer and so she's made me a better writer and made me think about things more I'm have been very impulsive in the past and Sarah has made me smarter by interrogating what I think and feel well that's a gorgeous description of her. Um, she might even cook you dinner now after this. <laughs> um, I won't keep you too much longer, Una, and thank you so much for the time. Before uh, I finish up, though, I did want to talk a little bit about the current times that we're in. Obviously, Brexit has been put on the long finger yet again. Uh, but Ireland is in kind of a, there's a curious feeling, I think, at the moment in Dublin. What do you think when you look around and to what extent do you worry? The pace of change in Dublin City and the type of change that is occurring is part, a large part of it is detrimental to the character and cultural fabric of the city. You know, that is a fact to me. At the same time, there are loads of things happening, um, increasingly so in clubbing, in art, in food that are very cool and very fun. Um, but for the most part, what I'm seeing in the place that I love so much and that I was brought up in and made a life for myself in is not creative, not smart, not interesting. 
it's feeling a bit boomy in a weird way because I remember that boom the Celtic Tiger boom and how a kind of a vacuum effect started to creep in Mm. yeah I mean I guess there is I think there's a difference in it though because we did not have the an economy rooted in global capital and foreign investment with regards to the Celtic Tiger you know it was predominantly an indigenous spoof (laughs) rather than a global one we all like you know sort of what was it we sort of borrowed money from each other and just kept ourselves artificially high yeah so this is a different vibe you know obviously the Celtic Tiger was total trash as well you know and um there has to be a way to sustainably grow and change and facilitate and accommodate everyone literally and figuratively in a city um that's not what's happening right now and there's multiple things occurring at the same time you know you have a demolition situation where entire blocks are just being leveled without any consideration for the diversity of architecture the jumble that cities should feed off um the difference in how things should look i came out of marks and spencers on livy street the other day and was completely turned around because half of liffey street has been demolished um it's the same with smithfield entire blocks in smithfield are going it's the same on you know molesworth street and dawson street and you know all i mean dublin 8 all around mill street newmarket or i mean it's wild um and and the keys as well so you have these like you know massive gaps literal gaps in in the city and what is filling those gaps is not interesting we need a certain amount of office space we need a certain number of hotels but they cannot be the majority of development happening in a city because all of a sudden then that's the only stuff you're providing for you're only providing for um people who live in corporate land and tourists and um foreign students essentially um without you know that's just a fact you know it's a fact that 79 percent of students living in purpose-built student accommodation are foreign students who are paying an awful lot for their education here so it's not providing for the vast majority of students who need accommodation in the city for example so the reason that this is happening okay a you have a government in finnegal that is a proxy for the market and are completely neoliberal and um think that you know just because they like a certain aesthetic or type of quote unquote progress um you know that that should just be everything but the problem is you know cities should not be homogenous you know like go to the suburbs if you want homogeny like that's literally a part of urban development that is about homogeny and I grew up in the suburbs I grew up in absolute nondescript cultural vacuum Dean's Grange you know which has a couple of pubs and loads of car dealerships in a graveyard and my you know it was perfect totally fine place to grow up but like there is no culture there there has to be some kind of plan where the protections of the things that make cities distinct and valued beyond capital are uh, protected and that is a simple let's have a blueprint for Dublin that does not allow for the eradication of the cultural and creative element of it that, you know it's pretty simple I meant to congratulate you um, earlier on, actually, because you were named uh, in 2019 as one of European Young Leaders. I'm not sure if I have the title exactly right, but uh, uh, even talking there, it's it's obvious that these are issues that 
you can bring to a broader base now through the meetings that you have as as part of that um, accolade. So um, before I ask you for your tune that best sums you up or that you just love, uh, can you give me an idea actually of what exactly uh, the title European Young Leader means in a practical sense? In a practical sense, it's a cohort of 40 people a year who are selected to engage in kind of high level discussions with each other and other people in Europe. Um, and it's chosen by a organisation called Friends of Europe. So I've been doing different things. We had a kind of a summit in London and, you know, talking a lot about Brexit and about democracy, threats to democracy. Um, and, you know, there's really interesting people in the cohort and it's been really great to share experiences of activism for example in grassroots protest movements um around progressive politics that have informed the social revolution that has happened in ireland in the last five years and sharing those with um you know people who are working in the french government or working in you know places that uh, don't have the like lgbt rights that we have um so yeah, it's it's you know really interesting. I'm going over to Brussels next week to speak to um, younger European leaders um, from uh, around issues around uh, the Mediterranean and activism around that. And um, so yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's I was surprised, you know, I just got um, selected out of the blue. I didn't apply for anything, so that was interesting. But yeah, I think I'm increasingly interested in. Um, the international aspects of my work um that's been very exciting development and it's the same with the podcast the nice thing about podcasts and I've noticed this myself is that it crisscrosses borders with great ease you can look in a map and discover that your podcast has been listened to in France or as I discovered get into the charts in Qatar who knew Lots of listeners in Al Jazeera and Doha, yeah. Um, But listen, the very best of luck with everything, and particularly, of course, with the United Ireland podcast. Uh, Una Malali, what track would you like to pick for us to uh, sign out on? I've been thinking about this as I've been talking, and because um, she's an amazing artist and a great person and did a stunning show um, around the country recently, I'm going to pick Amanda Palmer in my mind. Perfect. Una, thank you so much. Thank you. In my mind, in a future five years from now, I'm 120 pounds. And I never get hung over because I will be the picture of discipline, never minding what state I'm in. And I will be someone I admire. And it's funny how I imagined that I would be that person now But it does not seem to have happened Maybe I've just forgotten how To see that I'm not exactly the person that I thought I'd be Amanda Palmer there. The choice of my guest, Una Malali, on My Roots Are Showing. And my thanks to Una Malali for joining me on the podcast. Next time out, my guest is the Irish-American diplomat, Samantha Power. And that one will be coming to you in December. In the meantime, if you're enjoying the podcast as ever, please do consider subscribing on iTunes, telling your friends about it, 
and do get in touch with me I love hearing back about how you've been getting on with different podcasts it's always really nice if people post a tweet or send me a DM on Twitter so you can contact me at Nadine O'Regan or via the show page at my roots are show right this is Nadine O'Regan signing out for another podcast till the next time do take care it says I'm living in the moment and it's funny Maybe it isn't all that funny That I've been fighting all my life But maybe I have to think it's funny If I wanna live before I die And maybe it's funny